when you're accustomed to privilege, equity feels like oppression. I really believe that that is what's happening. When voices that have historically been silenced or devalued start to become more present, you're leveling the playing field. But what people are perceiving is that you're giving priority to these people now over the people who've always had it. And what that does is it creates a high level of resistance in many cases. People feel like, you know, this concept of reverse racism, reverse discrimination, you're now hiring these people and you're not hiring me and what that means. And it's just, it's really rooted in fear, right? It's rooted in people being afraid and feeling like something bad will happen to them when you see other people as equal or when you start to pay attention to another group. And so there isn't a level playing field to begin with and we need to course correct. But that's where a lot of the resistance comes in because people don't really understand that when you lift one up, you're not actually oppressing the other. That was Sabrina, the host of the Inclusive Design Podcast and advocate for diversity and inclusion. Today's episode covers our work in the DNI space, how tech can design for people at the margins, and the influence meditation has had on her life and mental health. This episode covers topics that are hard to talk about, but have to be discussed more in the tech world if we're truly going to build a better future for all. You are now listening to the Next Iteration podcast with your hosts Fuad and Damien. If you liked the episode, follow us on Spotify and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. Our website was built by Face Solutions, logo designed by Charmeni, and music by Wonderly Music. We hope you enjoy the episode. Sounds cool. good. Yeah, look, excited for the conversation today. So Sabrina, you've, uh, from what I've seen, I've done, did a little digging, a little bit of exploring, and you've been a pretty prominent voice within the diversity and uh, inclusion space and equity space. And from the from your profiles, uh, both on your website, both on your LinkedIn, it's very evident, like just the sheer amount of passion that you hold for this. And I, I we love digging into people's passions on this podcast. Like this is why mm-hmm. we're doing it. That's why we're here, right? So I just want to start with kind of a, a bit of story from you. What lit that fire inside of you that pushed you to do all of this amazing diversity and equity work? In other words, like what is your why? Yeah, it's such a good question. And I think I'm still unpacking my story as to what specifically led me to this space, because for as long as I can remember, I've always been an advocate for um, people that I felt like were excluded um, and really wanted to to, um, help correct injustice in the world. That has been something that's been with me since I was a kid in elementary school. So I'm really struggling to like figure out why because I my memory doesn't go that far back. Um, <laughs> but what I do remember and what I do know has been a really important factor in that has been um, the fact that I experienced a lot of bullying growing up for about 10 years of my life. And I really got to experience what it was like to be on the margins, on the outside, never included um, the afterthought and I think my experiences, and it was, it, you know, what I had rationalized was that this was for no fault of my own. Mm-hmm. For nothing I was doing, I was, I was excluded. And I, I felt like that was, that was uh, unfair. That was not just. And so mm-hmm. um, whenever I, I noticed that other people were on the outside and left out, 
for reasons that had nothing to do with they were doing, but just for who they were, um, that really bothered me. I've, I've also been really drawn to, um, you know, uh, world issues that surround um, the, the inequity and unfair treatment of people, the fact that certain communities don't have clean running water, um, the fact that education and access to, to proper education um, is uh, limited to few, like those, those systemic issues also um, were things that I felt really angry about. And so I'd find myself attracted to causes, um, attracted to a lot of volunteer work as I grew up that were all surrounding the space of correcting the injustice um, and doing whatever I could to help in that space. So I think that's that's what is sort of the foundation that has led to this career choice for me. It's just natural. It's really just been a part of my identity. So I, I find it hard to like link back exactly where it started because it's been yeah. forever. And it's the only, it's really who I am at my core. That's remarkable that it's been so intrinsic to you. There was no like one defining experience, even from such a young age, which is crazy. Like, I like at that age, I don't know what the heck I was thinking about. Like I was probably still just trying to po play Pokemon or something. So <laughs> yeah, it's remarkable that you had so, like more grandiose goals on your mind at the time. And, you know, like that, that intrinsic quality has taken you pretty far. Like you've done and accomplished a ton over your career. And uh, then like looking at that, I'm curious, like, what are you most proud of then? Oh, um, <laughs> I don't know what I'm most proud of because I think where I take pride, it, it's constantly changing. Um, I, I can say that there have been, I think what I'm most proud of is really coming into my, my own being and, and really um, perhaps leaning into my strengths, my value as an individual and um, upholding that above perhaps what other people think or what other people thought. Um, it's taken so much work for me. Um, I've always been this like ideas person, this tinkerer, you know, the person who like asks why um, when nobody else is asking why, and that tries to come up with new ideas and new um, ways of approaching things. And sometimes that's not very well received uh, by, by certain communities and it can be very easy. And I think also compounded with that is my own identity and the, the inequities that I've experienced in the workplace and uh, navigating this world. So like all of that compounded to a lot of people placing doubt on my capabilities and my strength, what I could bring to the table. And, um, and uh, I know you, you probably hear a lot of women um, being told, you know, you're too ambitious, you're too intense, you're too passionate. Those are things that I was told throughout my whole career. And it really took a lot for me to step into my own power and to recognize my own value above all of the opinions of other people. So I think if I like, um, if I was to name just, uh, you know, some something that I feel very proud about, it's emerging from all of that. And still being able to uh, push forward and achieve things um, by by recognizing what I bring to the table. That's beautiful. I think I think a lot of people, um, you know, sometimes can see th these issues happening, but 
it's it's a it's a different thing to to take this like by by the horns and like actually you know overcome these things so what would you say are some strategies that you've implemented and obviously you know we should be working to make it easier for these things to happen in the first place like you know these things shouldn't be so hard to do but what are some Mm -hmm. strategies you've kind of implemented in your own life to help you kind of overcome those feelings and 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 really you know get to where you are right now yeah um i think i had to one look at the people that i really admired in this world and and focus my um, if i was to be concerned about anybody's opinion or perspective it was people who i really admired for their values for their ethics for the way they navigated the world and and then i'd maybe lean into what their opinion was or what they thought about what i was doing but when it came to people who who i potentially didn't really feel like i aspired to be like them or i didn't align with their values i questioned why i was putting so much of an emphasis on what they thought about me and why why that started to why that mattered so much to me and um, it took a lot of, of unpacking and, and um, really, really thinking about like, where am I putting the emphasis on? And so I think that was a big part of it. But it was like, I needed to, to really sit with and question, because for so long, I had blamed myself for being too passionate, too intense, too ambitious. Um, I had to work I actually invested money in coaching to help myself become less of those things because other people felt like that was, that made them too uncomfortable. And I took all that responsibility on myself until one day I realized that like, this is me. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that really. And when I look at the people who I aspire to be and who I look at and I I admire, they have these qualities. So um, why am I putting so much weight and so much value on the these people that I don't really look up to and I don't really admire and so yeah that was a reframe for myself and and I think that was a big step for me in the right direction mm-hmm. uh quick follow-up question of that since I'm, I'm always interested in mentorship and that sort of field who are the people who look up to the most and how have they kind of impacted you oh well that's a really good question I think who I look up to I, I think it changes constantly um, I've been fortunate to be surrounded by some really great colleagues and mentors who push me in different directions. I actually like to engage with people that are outside of my field as well, that just introduce new perspective, new thought. Um, and, and then I'm, I, I get really inspired by people who author certain books and, and are introducing new perspectives into the world. So like Adrienne Marie Brown, for example, is um, a, uh, an author and a, a brilliant uh, thought leader in emergent strategy and really just grounding around this work that I'm, I'm embarking on and just how to create systemic change, um, leading from the inside and understanding our, like us as human beings. And it just is a, such a, um, uh, has such a profound and beautiful way of articulating thought in this manner and I am greatly inspired by uh, by her so I really lean into some of uh, Adrian Marie Brown's work and um, and other authors as well that I just kind of end up like watching a lot of YouTube and and listening to what different thought leaders have and then I have of course my own community as well so yeah mm-hmm. and that's always changing mm-hmm. that's cool yeah and I like yeah. the emphasis on uh, always changing I I like to do this exercise every year where 
Um, I do a few things. Like I, I kind of go like through my values over the past year and see how I've like embodied them. And then at the end, I always go through like people I've looked up to and like who I look up to now and see if that's changed over the past year. And it's really interesting to see how, depending on like what your values are and, and what you're going through in life, like you look up to different people and you, you kind of get so many different experiences from them, which is really cool. So good yeah. to hear that. I'll definitely check out uh, the author that you mentioned and, and, and check out some of her works. Um, cool. So one of the things and habits that you mentioned is that um, you, you really like, like asking why, like getting to the bottom of things and, and not just like taking things for face value. Right. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways I think that you've really, really embodied that is the inclusive design podcast and inclusive design in general is one of those things where you, you take an issue and you ask, well, why is it like this in the first place? Right. Um, and you know, what are we doing wrong? What assumptions are we making? Um, you know, how are we, um, catering to different communities or not catering to different communities by the way that we're, you know, making these assumptions. Um, so tell me a little bit about the inclusive design podcast and how you started it. Um, yeah, I started it to get the word out on, uh, on this concept, which I think is fairly new around or new, I would say in the sense of the design community at large. Um, uh, around inclusive design and just getting folks uh, aware of how deep that stretches into everything that we interact with, um, all of our fields. Um, and I found myself as the deeper that I would get into the space of diversity and inclusion, whenever I'd be engaging with whatever it was, whether it was like trying to order coffee during a pandemic, or I was, um, you know, walking up and down the streets and, um, and uh, looking for or like trying to find a taxi or whatever it might be, I I would I would naturally just bring that lens of diversity and inclusion into those spaces to think, oh okay, this is interesting. This is how I'm experiencing it. How might somebody else experience it? And it was just this this constant curiosity. So I wanted to share those thoughts with uh, with the broader community and get folks thinking about how D and I. Um, as we call it, is so much broader than HR. And I felt like it was always getting boxed. The, the, the concept of diversity, equity, and inclusion was always getting placed in the HR world. And that's really not where it should be. It should be embedded and integrated into everything that we do, um, and into everything that we conceive and we bring to life in our world. So that's what inclusive design to me is all about, is bringing this thought around diversity, equity, inclusion, anti-racism into the space of design in general. And so um, that was the purpose. I love how it's incredibly evident how empathetic you are, just in like, just even with what you mentioned, that lens with through which you view everything, right? You're taking yourself constantly out of that equation, like, okay, well, if this is how I'm experiencing it, I wonder how other people could be experiencing the same thing as well. And like, I've heard this from like other people, depending on whatever it is that they're immersed in, like say marketing people, for example, you know, they see an ad or like a poster up on the wall and, you know, mm. they could just be like, okay, well, this is horrible. Whoever designed this needs to get a better job or choose a different career path, whatever it is. Does that lens ever come off or is just this pervasive part of the way you live life? I think at times if I'm not like intentional, I mean, we get into our habits and our patterns mm -hmm. that are just day to day. 
Um, but then sometimes I find my mind just going, getting curious again and thinking about things. It's not something that I carry with me every step of everything I do because I, I don't, I don't think that I could exist that way either. It's, you know, constantly trying to change the lens is, is, is tiring mentally, but that's why it's so important too, right? Mm -hmm. That's why we like, we want people who do this as, as a field and people who create and, and innovate and work as designers to actually bring this lens of thinking into their work. But yeah, it's, it's not, it's not something that I am constantly thinking about, but I think when I, when I give myself some space to step back and reflect and wonder and, um, realize like, like the, I, I did an episode on the Amazon ghost store. Right. Mm -hmm. And just thinking about like, when I, um, like I, I had this moment where I was like, this is so awesome. It's so amazing. And then I, I was like, wait, is it awesome for everyone? And I just asked myself that question and who might, who might it not be awesome for? And so that, um, thinking happens to me kind of a, a lot more frequently. Um, the more I'm, I'm engaged in this space, but it's not like it's, it's all the time playing in my brain. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine how you have to be really intentional about it. Cause it can get pretty exhausting. I'm sure to, to kind of always think about that, but also, um, you know, you want to be purposeful with that thinking. Like you want to mm -hmm. apply it to things that you can actually make a change in. Right. Um, because otherwise you, you, you kind of walk through the world and you realize a lot of stuff is not designed that well. It's so cool. Um, though, I love that you like, mentioned it's cool to just before you jump in there, it's just cool how it's become habitual too. Like there's so like you've removed most of the friction out of that. And like, I love how that's just a byproduct of you being obsessed with this problem. Uh, and yeah, that's just something that I've been thinking about a lot more about, like, I guess when it comes back to like the idea of purpose and whatnot, but that was just like a side point. Sorry, Fwad, I didn't mean to interject. No, that. no, 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 for sure. For sure. Like, yeah, I think the idea of friction is very, very important mm -hmm. too. Cause once you, once you have that, why, and once you start building from that, it's way easier mm -hmm. to think about those things because you have that underlying principle. Right. Um, cool. So actually I love that you mentioned the Amazon go case study. Cause I listened to the episode and it was, it was honestly one of my favorites. Uh, and I want to kind of follow up and, and, you know, being, being, uh, in the tech field, wanted to ask you a few questions about that. So I think, you know, the field of computer vision and machine learning in general has kind of been wrought with a lot of controversy setting around, you know, this concept of bias training data, right? So if you have bias training data, data that reflects, you know, the patriarchy, other systems of oppressions, you know, systemic inequalities, uh, privilege, and you have that data informing models that kind of reinforce that bias, um, you get a, you get an even worse problem, right? Mm -hmm. So these bias training this bias training data is informing models that you know reinforce the bias that they're they're based upon, um, and you get you know uh, computer vision that um, doesn't recognize you know uh, people of color or falsely identifies people of color as being more likely to be incarcerated or you know it takes a name an automated resume parser takes a name and you know having racialized names I, I think me and you can both really relate to this might put you in a different pile just because of your name and, and certain associations and correlation coefficients and all that. So uh, my question for you is how do we design solutions that solve for this? I don't know if this is something you've kind of thought about a lot. Uh, and I know this might be, you know, a pretty big question, uh, but how do we build more equitable like data products and, and algorithms when we have such, like, such bad data out there? Yeah, it's a huge question. I think it starts with representation. Um, I think if you look at the people who are actually designing and creating these models and, um, and, and developing these uh, machines <laughs> to make these decisions, those, are, those people are not representative of our population. And therefore, naturally, the way in which these technologies are designed are designed with those biases. Um, there's a really fantastic documentary that came out not too long ago called Coded Bias. 
And uh, it features the incredible uh, researcher Joy Bulamwini, who uh, is active on LinkedIn, has, uh, um, has founded the Algorithmic Justice League. And it talks about this very thing about how bias is so embedded in uh, machines and in our technology and how dangerous that is as we start to utilize AI to make these massive decisions as it relates to justice or self-driving cars or so many things that, that we're programming computers to do without realizing that we're actually programming it with the based on the way that things are. Like something that's really interesting to me that I've been really reflecting on is the fact that we aren't creating our technologies based on ideal futures. We're creating it based on history. And we know history is inequitable. We know that history is unjust. And yet we're utilizing like old data, data that isn't, isn't equitable to begin with, to teach these machines things and then to make this um, assumption that everything that the machine says or does is considered as truth. And that is so, so dangerous because we're not actually building these machines to be future led and, and by like what state we want the world to be in. We're building it based on what we currently have. And so we have to really shift that. And I think part of that is representation, both representation in the way that data is collected, representation in the way that we test, representation in the folks that are on the teams. Um, and it's, it becomes increasingly more important, I think, when technology is um, relied on or impacts every single member of our society. In that case, you can't actually exclude anyone. You can't exclude anyone. There are, there are cases like when you develop a product or service, you might say, okay, this product is for this demographic and I'm intentional about it. I know it excludes this group and I'm making a conscious decision to exclude that group. That's not a bad thing. We can't make every single product for every single human being. That's okay if you're making an intentional decision. But when it comes to this type of technology, technology that is um, making justice related decisions, technology like self-driving cars, you can't exclude anyone because it impacts every single human being that's out there. And that means we have to focus on like the edge of the edge of the edge cases of scenarios. We can't look at the average user. We can't look at the middle because that, that firstly, there, there's no such thing as the average anyways. But, um, but I, I think what, as we, we need to look at the extreme cases and that's um, critical in the way that we design. So I think that's a, a big part of it as well. Yeah. It's such a massive problem though. Cause like, and I don't want to get too deep into this because this is, I don't, yeah, this is a bit out of my wheelhouse, at least like maybe you guys can speak to it a little bit better, but like coming from a health background, right? And I love the point that you mentioned about how it's built on just history rather than like future proofing itself as a technology. And it's not aspirational. Yeah, yeah. right. Mm -mm. And it's like, it's an important point because like looking at history, like the further you go back, it's like the more marginalized and oppressed you see populations get, right? And if you're mm -hmm. using that as training data, then you're just perpetuating those, uh, those that marginalization, like well into the future as well. But like, even like coming from a health background, right? Like one of the biggest problems in health right now is that everything is hidden behind data silos. Like nobody's sharing data or if they are sharing data, everyone's talking in different standards. Like it's so hard mm -hmm. to like address this problem sometimes just because we don't have the proper foundation 
on which to start building upon. So like, how, like, how do you even like start addressing that? Right. Like, yeah, sure. You go talk to your policymakers, you try that, uh, try to get them to start implementing some changes where everybody else can start playing on the same level playing field, but everyone knows how slow policy is to move. And, you know, even just getting everything within that Overton window where people are actually talking about it is such a hard problem in the first place. Mm -hmm. And I think representation, I love that you mentioned that too, because I, I don't know if you've read the book invisible woman. Um, I read it last year and honestly, like uh, such an amazing book, but um, it talked about like the data gap um, and how, you know, data collected is like literally the average show. Like, why do we call it the average show in the first place? Our averages by like overwhelmingly, you know, whether we were designing car seats or airplanes or cities, like everything is designed for the average male, right? Mm -hmm. Instead of the average person, which is, you know, a lot shorter than the average male. Um, you know, even the way that like city, like snow plowing occurs, right? Uh, mm -hmm. We plow like certain roads that men use way more often mm -hmm. than women. And if you do the math, it actually shows that women are much, much more likely and do suffer from way more se severe injuries from falling on ice because their roads aren't plowed as often and the roads that they use aren't plowed as often. So it's amazing how like, it's not just like these issues on the margins, like, oh, mm -hmm. what happens when a self-driving car hits like a grandma? Like, no, like these are real issues that are already happening. And it's not just tech. It's like inclusive design is inclusive design of cities, inclusive design of buildings, like yeah. inclusive design of everything. Um, so yeah, um, I guess like a follow-up question to that is, um, I think I'm a big believer in the power of government. And I think that, you know, we've kind of we've kind of arrived at a state at least in north american society where we have a lot of trust issues with the government shall we say you know we we don't believe government is efficient enough to solve some of these problems we believe that if tax dollars are into the equation you know we're just going to waste money uh we think industry and social entrepreneurship is the way to go um mm -hmm. where do you kind of stand on that spectrum and um how do you think is the best way to actually solve these problems? Like, do you think they should be in the realm of government? Do you think they should be in the realm of entrepreneurs, billionaires? Um, you know, um, and how do we actually galvanize those respective groups to solve these problems? Oh, that's a heavy question. <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> we're, we're only I mean, 28 minutes into the combo, but. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, I'd like to think that government if it's operating correctly, should have the best interest of the people. I'd like to hope that, think that, <laughs> right? Um, but we know it's not always the case, especially for people that have more marginalized identities. And so uh, it's difficult. Similarly, businesses don't have those interests either. There really aren't, I believe, many bodies that other than marginalized like organizations that are run by people who identify as members of un, of underrepresented communities like nonprofits or organizations that are, are run by those people that actually understand the issues and that can advocate well for them um i don't i, I believe that it should uh, there should be regulations for example around uh uh, AI and and this type of technology, making sure that there's some sort of governance around it. Right now, there isn't. So organizations can put out these technologies and they can be utilized with the assumption that they are they they speak as truth, and that's so dangerous. Nobody's there actually making sure 
that they account for all these identities. Nobody's making sure that these these um, groups have been considered. So I think that there has to be some sort of regulation and um, steps around that. And then I get nervous because I don't think that government is progressive. I don't believe that government is actually even dabbling in this space quite heavily enough and, and has the, that expertise. Um, and I don't believe that the voices that need to be considered are brought forward um, either. So I think it's like what I look to is organizations that are um, these change agents in our community, you know, that are really trying to advocate for an equitable way um, of, of approaching design. Um, there's a, a, a fantastic group uh, called the Creative Reaction Lab. Um, they uh, do deal with like an equity-centered design framework. So I think that it's organizations like that that are going to be um, uh, change makers in this space. And, uh, and I, I hope that government and other organizations lean on these expertise and lean on these populations that are, are considering um, uh, design from this perspective to inform their policies, to inform the way that they approach their practices. But it's wishful thinking because I haven't seen that happen, which is why, you know, I'm in this space too, right? Trying to make these mi micro changes. Um, and as Adrian Marie Brown talks about um, around this concept of fractals is that like, uh, it, it's sometimes small changes that are repeated over and over and over again that create systemic and large scale changes. Mm -hmm. They reverberate to create greater change. And mm -hmm. so I'm, I, I want to believe that that is the way forward and that it isn't maybe always grandiose, but it is like these small actions from organizations that are advocating for this, um, that are influencing and planting seeds that start to create bigger and bigger changes. Just a, mm -hmm. the butterfly effect just organically happening. And like kind of like yeah. what you touched upon is, I think it really is important that both government and like the private sector have to work hand in hand in addressing this problem because I mean like if one oversteps then you're taking a step backwards at the same time like if government enforces too many um, regulations then you're stifling innovation in a certain way right like you there's you wouldn't go out and redesign how a, a nuclear power plant is built right now just because there's so many regulations surrounding it that it would cause like billions of dollars to do that right now and that's you have to there, I guess there has to be that incentive structure in place for both of them to do it and I guess once we start to better understand that problem itself and we can start to state you know like what let's break this problem down how like what are the smaller steps smaller parts of this that we have to address so that we can solve mm. like the bigger as a whole and like you said it's, it's all about those like mm -hmm. micro incremental changes like a little bit over time you chip away at it chip away at it and then you look back at it like five years from from now and you made tremendous strides. Yeah. And the, and the one thing that I feel like I get where, when I say that about this, you know, small changes that reverberate and create greater change, I pause and just consider the fact that technology is changing so rapidly mm -hmm. and there's a great risk of, um, of, of also moving slow, like it's just so difficult because how do you, we, we know that change happens slowly, change happens through, you know, these, these movements, but I get worried about, is there enough time here 
Um, if we take a slow process mm. around creating some really strong regulations and, pro and policies to govern things like um, justice related AI, you know, like that is scary right. and that will impact so many lives and it could be deployed any moment. And, mm -hmm. and so there isn't time for like these small changes. So I'm, I'm not like, I'm kind of going back on what I said, but I'm not, I'm, I'm saying like, you know, it does need to go. We need to recognize that this change happens mm -hmm. bit by bit and mm -hmm. also recognize where we need to take these bigger steps because of the threat um, that impacts so many people's lives. So it's, it's difficult. It's like the the quote everything in moderation even in mo even moderation you know like yeah there there's a time and a place for everything and and small changes are, are obviously very important but there are bigger issues sometimes right especially with justice like that's not something we can afford to mess up right especially once exactly. it's deployed and once it's reinforcing its own systems like that's that's just going to be you know even worse of a challenge to to kind of uh to kind of get rid of but mm. you know we're, get, we're getting a little negative so i wanted to ask like on a positive <laughs> note uh what what's one instance where you see an inclusive design like really really work and and enable like a positive outcome oh well either in um, your own work or question. someone else's work <laughs> i can say that through my own work i'm seeing change happen um like it's not to the point right now where there is a um a, a like a massive outcome but again like i said these things happen like over time but what i am sure. seeing is really incredible shifts that are happening in the way in which teams are thinking about diversity. And specifically, I'm talking about like product-related teams. So looking at organizations that perhaps are dealing with, um, for example, uh, an, an educational marketplace or a learning marketplace, you know, thinking about learners from a, from a diverse perspective, understanding, um, you know, how how learners from different cultural backgrounds, different languages, different abilities, different age groups, and how uh, how they experience uh, this this marketplace, for example, how um, even just how like the, the society has created these assumptions around, for example, how age is deter is supposed to be the determinant of your intellectual capabilities. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we, we assign and associate age with where you should technically be. These are all like really interesting things that I'm seeing teams start mm. to unpack and, and unlearn and challenge themselves on. Right. Um, we're also working with a, a car sharing um, uh, organization, and it's, it's just been really amazing to see how the organization is starting to think about the way that they um uh, that they're being perceived by racialized communities. Uh, their mandate is to provide accessible and affordable transportation to communities that uh, and, and environmentally friendly solutions to communities that need it the most. Mm -hmm. And so you think about who, which communities do need accessible and affordable transportation. Um, are, are all of those communities needs being served through this solution? How are they or how are they not? And so like really bringing that co that consciousness and that awareness and really starting to dig deeper. I believe that um, as we continue to, to do that, we start to um, elevate the voices of people who we um, often don't consider or don't think about. And um, those voices need to actually be at the front. And so when we do that, we shift the whole... Um, 
myth around designing for that normal or the average user. And we allow ourselves to design for, for communities that are typically overlooked. And I think that will lead to massive systemic change as organizations continue to lean into that. Mm-hmm. Building off that point, I think you mentioned that you've seen, you've seen a lot of changes happen in like how people kind of interpret diversity and equity and how they practice that. Um, and I think one thing that I've thought a lot about is, um, you know, sometimes it's seen as like a department, whether it's in HR, whether it's, you know, a little bit more integrated, it's kind of seen as like an other, it's like an added thing. Like you, you do it, you design your product and then you think, okay, like how did, how did we, yeah. be, how are we inclusive? How are we not inclusive? What should we mm-hmm. fix? Right. Um, and I think, you know, the ideal scenario is obviously integrating that a lot more tightly. So how can teams and specifically teams of engineers, like on more product focused, you know, orgs and things like that, um, integrate that into more of like their day-to-day thinking, their day-to-day tasks, like how they build things, how they code things. Yeah, so definitely there's a, there is an absolute element around it for engineers. And then I'd also say that there is uh, an equal or um, equal importance in space of research and design, and they all kind of work together. So I think that it starts with Firstly, understanding or getting close to what the purpose is of what you're creating and really getting clear on that. You know, we're creating this for this reason, and this is who it's meant for. And so um, I give you an example of a company that I think uh, approaches this well. Um, So there's a company called Periodile, and they uh, create menstrual products. And so if you were to look at this company and, you know, they they were to go into what their purpose is, a company that like a standard regular company that maybe creates period products would say that we create products for women, right? And then you you need to ask yourself, um, okay, they they create, uh, yeah, products for women. And then you might ask, which women? And so you might be like, okay, well, it's for women who get their periods. And then you might ask, do all women get their periods or do um, only women get their periods? Because if you understand that gender, um, gender diversity, you might think that it's not only women, it's people who may identify as as man or Mm non-binary that also get their periods. And so what Periodile did is that they created this, um, their marketing campaign is it's for uh, people who menstruate or for people with periods. And that is such a, a different way of targeting your user because now you're thinking about it's for anybody who gets their period. And so when you then go into identity, now you've rooted it in your purpose, you start to unpack identity and you look through that lens, like, well, okay, which type of people? Well, is it is it only thin people? No, it could be people who are of all various sizes and body shapes. Um, is it only for white people? No, it could be for any racialized community. Is it only for straight people? No, it could be anybody from the LGBTQIA 2S plus community, right? So you start to realize, okay, so if it's for all of these people, what am I doing to actually consider those voices as part of this design? What am I doing to incorporate their their voice, their perspective, their lived experience into the way that I'm creating my product? So you have to kind of go back to come forward, I think, and and Mm -hmm. really need to unpack like, what is the intention? What am I actually trying to achieve? And who 
um, currently benefits from it, but who else could benefit from it that I haven't thought about, that I may not have considered. And so that's the work that we do with our clients is like, we really get into that space of like deep exploration of the people that they are maybe overlooking and unintentionally excluding. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't exclude, like uh, Periodal will say that their products are not made for anyone who doesn't get their period. And that's okay, because that's who their products are not made for. But you have to be very conscious in knowing, knowing that you are excluding demographics and knowing why you're excluding them. Mm-hmm. Um, what happens is a lot of organizations just don't even know who they're excluding. Uh, and and that's where that's where the issues lie. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Rewinding that, starting backwards, and and focusing that because if you have a clear idea of who you're designing for, and that idea is you know narrowed down to the point where you're consciously thinking about it, but also inclusive enough where you've also thought about who to include additionally to that. Um, I think that's really important. That's really powerful. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, it's like first principles thinking applied to this space as well. Yeah, you can't like you said, you're just working backwards until you're at like bare bones, understanding like what is the skeleton of the problem, what is the real foundation of it, and then you get to address like all those other aspects of it. Now, yeah, and it goes what, backwards because it goes backwards because a lot of organizations haven't put this at the forefront to begin with, right? right. That's the problem. And that's where we're now, now we're having to go backwards. But if you had thought about it in the beginning, you wouldn't have had to. So right. That's the whole thing to to your points before about you know trying to create something and then slide it in at the end where it just doesn't work. You gotta go, you gotta start at the beginning. Right. It has to be an intentional part of the design. Mm-hmm. Now with uh I I don't know if this is like a I'm mistaken, I guess, in my assumption of this, but I feel like with work like this, it has to uh start with the self. And you know, you need to be able to have like a strong foundation of self in order to, you know, start helping others, right? If you want to change the world, the easiest place to start is with yourself first, because if you can't change yourself, the world's going to be a, it's going to be a way bigger problem that you it's going to be out of your hands. Mm. And I know that you're big on meditation and I'm really curious to hear a bit more about the unique experience that you've had of going on uh, not one, but two silent meditation retreats. And uh, I was just wondering, could you uh, could you speak to that a bit? Like, how long were you there? What insights did you gain? And what enticed you to go back a second time? Gosh, I knew you were going to ask this question. And I have to say <laughs> that there's a part of me that cringed because I wish I could go back now. And, I, and I've really been slacking on that front for some time, which mm. has definitely impacted me. So it's one of those things that I got to like really look at in the eye and be like, yes, you haven't been doing it. Yes. You need to get back into it and, and all that. that. But, um, but I can say that it has like meditation in general has had a really um, profound impact on my life in the sense that it has allowed me to um, sometimes. Okay. So I'll, I'll explain it this way. There was a point in my life where I uh, struggled to, I was in between jobs and I was really trying to find out what my next step would be. Do I go back to school? Do I find a job? Do I start like keep looking? Am I like, what do do I do? Do I apply for scholarships? Do I do this? Do I do that? And there was a mentor that I had at the time who was a um, really wonderful psychologist. And I had asked her, you know, like, what should I do? What should I do? And she's like, I want you to 
do nothing. I want you to sit and watch TV. And I was like, this is the worst advice you can ever give me. It was so horrible. Like, are you kidding? I'm so stressed. Like, I'm not going to sit and watch TV. And I just, I felt like that was. Oh, you muted yourself. Was, oh, sorry. Did I get cut off there? Yeah. Just muted just yourself. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So um, what I ended up doing just at that point was I ended up difficulties, um, but her deciding to uh, listen to her. And it was incredible what happened over that period of time. Just sitting and doing nothing allowed a lot of things to just sort themselves out and in my brain and in my mind. And that. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I was saying that in this, in this scenario, we ha- I had this um, mentor that had told me to do nothing at the time. And I found that to be a really ridiculous statement. But then I realized afterwards that actually stepping away and not doing anything allowed um, myself to, um, like, my, my body and my brain to just sort of figure out what the right step was. And it was after that, that just so much clarity came into my life and things started happening in my life. And I felt like there was a sense of direction. And I know sometimes people feel like that's all frou-frou, like weird stuff, but it's it's really like, it's really true. And um, I think I I have a very overactive mind. I work in a space that's highly cerebral and it also though requires me to um, exercise creativity and to, um, uh, be at peace with myself. My work is heavily emotional at times. Like I hear a lot of difficult stories. You know, I listen to, um, when people are excluded, I listen to their stories all the time, which is not easy to, um, uh, to hear constantly. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, I need this like downtime and the space to just allow my body to process what I've been feeling and accumulating um, and not really dealing with. So uh, meditation has allowed that outlet to happen. And and to your uh, question about the silent retreat, I think um, it was it was one of the most what I thought would be the most daunting experiences. Yeah. No phone, no um, no phone, no books, no TV, nothing. Um, no writing. Um, and you have me until I, no writing. I was like, I could do all that. Just write all day, but no, no writing, that's no so internet, hard. nothing. And I, um, unless there was like a particular activity where they were like, you know, write something down, but, uh, otherwise it was totally silent. Um, when you're eating silent all day all, for five days, and it was uh, scary before I did it, but it ended up being one of the most um, uh, rewarding experiences for me, just in terms of how I felt within myself. Mm-hmm. And so um, mm-hmm. you're reminding me that I need to do it again. <laughs> yeah, it's so easy to, I mean, like I have a couple thoughts on what you said, but just touching on just being constantly engaged, being constantly, like your cognitive bandwidth, constantly just being stretched to its limits. Mm-hmm it's easy to be like just completely immersed in that life. And it's kind of like a fish and water effect. Right. And if you don't take the time to just step out of that, that body of water, then you're not going to realize like all like the pain points in your life. Yeah. Um, we, we've kind of touched on mentorship before too. And like mentors are great for this. Like proactive therapy is great for this. Right. Um, you don't get to see like all the areas in life where you're 
you're you're causing yourself to suffer and like it's hard uh, yeah. I, i'm just curious how long were you at that silent retreat for it was five days <sighs> it's a long five yeah. days five yeah. days but yeah. yeah it's it's definitely um yeah it was definitely one of the best experiences that i've had so yeah yeah, yeah. i really want to do um of a pasta meditation retreat like that's on yes. my bucket mm. list and that was one like of my i was going to be my graduation presents myself i think that's like, 10. really yeah it did it, uh, with covid i think it's not going to work out oh, okay yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, obviously... it's 10 days right i think it's 10 days so i don't know if they're mod- like seven to ten days I mean, it's somewhere oh, okay. around there though it is okay. long though yeah um yeah but like i was hearing i don't know do you know sam harris no no okay well so sam harris is just um he's a neuroscientist and he he was detailing his account of doing it at a young age mm. and he came out of it um and hearing some of the other people's like experiences that he was there like oh this was life-changing I'm going yeah. back into reintegrate society with this this new vigor, mm-hmm. this new zeal. And he was just like, you guys are crazy. That was terrible. I had no idea what was going on. Like I was stressing out. Like I, I had nothing to do with myself. And yeah, that's that's especially considering I realized how um uh, hyper aware I've become recently of just you know constantly notifications going off on my phone. I'm constantly checking it. TikTok has become like a terrible new addiction. I got to delete that because <laughs> I, I, like, I told myself I was going to do it and I regret doing it now. But yeah, if it was face palming, completely understand it. Um, I've been through that. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's hard. So um, wh- do you subscribe to any particular meditation practice? I learned it through the Art of Living Foundation. So, um, yeah, it's a global um, institute that uh, teaches its own kind of technique and and method. And so uh, that's where I started to get really into it, because I found that that particular meditation technique, um, which which features like a sequence of of breathing um, at at a a repetition kind of way at different paces, Um, really helped me get into that space where I could meditate and, um, and kind of just sink into it. So that was, um, that's where I've been going. Mm, I love that. So we are getting close to time. And I want to be respectful of uh, your time as well. I just want to ask one quick, maybe a little bit of a tougher question before we ask our final question. And it that is, has your work ever been faced with any dissent? Like people just, you know, the naysayers, people saying, oh, this is mm-hmm. a waste of time. There are more important things that we could be addressing, et cetera, et cetera. And if you have, like, how do you, how do you deal with that? Oh yeah. All the time. Yeah. <laughs> all the time. I think this, this um, subject sparks feelings and mm-hmm. um, especially there's a really wonderful quote that I like to reference because um, it uh, it speaks to what I think is happening, which is, um, and I don't know who said it, but uh, the quote is, um, when you're accustomed to privilege, equity feels like oppression. And oh wow, I yeah. really, I really believe that that is what's happening. When voices that have historically been, um, silenced or devalued 
we're not at the top, start to become more present, you're leveling the playing field. But what people are perceiving is that you're giving priority to these people now over the people who've always had it. And what that does is it creates um, a really um, a high level of resistance in many cases. People feel like, you know, this concept of reverse racism, reverse discrimination, you're now hiring these people and you're not hiring me and what that means. And it's just, you know, it's really rooted in fear, right? It's rooted in people being afraid and feeling like something bad will happen to them when you, when you see other people as equal or when you start to pay attention to another group. And what I think, where I think that comes from a lot of the time is that when we've been, we've been groomed under a, a very individualistic society. And two, we have, um, we've come to think like we're so ingrained in the way that we experience life and the way that and what's normal to us. And we tend to project our own lived experiences onto other people and thinking that, oh, well, like I see, like I have a black friend and I see them getting roles. So like, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't think there is an issue. You know, people approaching it from that standpoint, because you don't live in those shoes. You don't know. And, and we also think about communities that are, um, uh, of folks with underrepresented underrepresented identities, we think of them as monolith. Like we think everybody should have the same exact experience. Otherwise it doesn't, it's not true. Um, mm. And we don't, for some reason, think about that when it comes to people who have privileged identities. We don't mm. think all white people are the exact same. We know that white people can vary and have different personalities and have different lived experiences. And that's part of, of being a human. But when it comes to, um, marginalized identities, we tend to like uh, add stereotypes or assume that the voice of one person equals the voice of everybody. And I think we really need to start looking at data and we start need to start looking at their, you know, um, the number of stories that are surfacing, that what and, and what the data, the numerical data shows us, right, about pay equity, around opportunities, around um, uh, income disparities around so many things that are like our healthcare system and so on. And I think as we start to lean into the data, there's no denying in the numbers. And so um, there isn't a level playing field to begin with. And we need to, we need to course correct. But that's where a lot of the resistance comes in because people don't really understand that when you lift one up, you're not actually oppressing the other. Mm -hmm. This um, reminds me this reminds me of like, I don't know if you've read Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman, but mm -hmm. the availability heuristic where, you know, like, like you mentioned, like, oh, I have a black friend, he gets jobs. So it's not, it's not an issue, right? Like people, like these things are so available to them. And then on a larger scale, what media portrays, right? When, yeah. when New York Times articles are all headlined with, oh, like this vaccine from China, right? Like then that's what's available to you. And that's what you assume. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's how you kind of project across an entire population of people. And we don't do that yeah. for, you know, people who are supposedly normal or like cultureless. Right. Which is also like yeah. a dangerous thing, because then you're assuming that, you know, nothing is what's normal, is what's regular, is what's white. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah. Yeah. I think that was that was that was very powerful. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that quote. Like that's that's up there with one of my faves now. I'm going to start spreading that around. Yeah. Yeah. We got to find out who said that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> All right. Cool. Uh, Fouad, um, you want to yeah, cap us off? Yes, of course. I'll do the honors. Uh, thank you. Um, so we like to end our podcast with um, this final question, which is if you could put 
any one message on a billboard that would reach millions, even billions of people, uh, what message would you put on it and why? Mm. And take your time, no worries. Can it be a quote by somebody else? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely, yes. Okay. Um, like, I think I would say there's two things. I would say like, you are not everybody. <laughs> That's one. Like, mm -hmm. you do not represent everybody. And two is that like, there's this really powerful quote that I think, um, like, I, I internalize it as a, as a mantra for myself in this work. And I, if there was a better way to capture it, I would, but I just love the way that this person has said it. And um, it's a quote by Dr. Crystal Jones, um, founded on Twitter. Uh, and she said, there's... Um, there is a huge difference between all are welcome and this was made with you in mind. Right. And that is literally the guiding principle for our work and what mm -hmm. I do with my company is um, we help organizations that may be making these statements that we release. We saw a lot of them surface this past summer. Um, mm -hmm. Statements. You know, uh, we care about everyone. This cup was made for everybody. We, you know, we welcome you to use our banking services. It's for everyone. Is it really for everyone? And there's a big difference between saying everyone is welcome. And this was created with you in mind. I mean, I go back to that example. I, I wrote an article um, a, a little while back around like the Band-Aid mm -hmm. and how uh, Johnson and Johnson launched this band-aid and for it's still still until today their flesh colored band-aid is not flesh for me it's not flesh for people with darker skin complexions it's certainly not flesh for black folks and so um yet like you you're gonna say like band-aids are for everyone but no it's actually not been thoughtfully designed true color band-aids for example you should all go buy true color band-aids but true color band-aids um it uh was created with uh, uh the, um the intent was to have all people of all complexions represented through their product so they've created band-aids that actually like blend into your skin color. I don't know what that feels like, you know, mm. having, if not using those band-aids, I don't know what that feels like. And so I think that there is a big difference between saying anyone can use a band-aid and this band-aid was made for you with you in mind. It was made understanding your skin color. And what that does is it creates that sense of like loyalty and real, um, I am being seen. Absolutely. You get me. You're seeing me in a way that I've never been, I've never felt seen before. And that's the type of feeling that I want companies to aspire to, to create yeah. in their customers. I love that. I love yeah. That. When you, uh, when you build a solution for one person, you build a solution for many. When you believe, build a solution for everyone, you build a solution for nobody. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. So Sabrina, we are over time now. Thank you so much yeah. for joining us today. Do you have any final thoughts? Where can people reach you if they would like to get in contact with you? Yeah, absolutely. So you can find me on LinkedIn, Sabrina Meharali. Um, my last name is difficult to uh, maybe <laughs> open in the description. We'll know it, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, or you could find me at uh, designingforinclusion.ca. Uh, we are going undergoing a brand change, though, so stay tuned for that. That'll Ooh, happen in exciting. a month or so. Yeah. That's exciting. Cool, cool. All right. Yeah. Thank yeah. you again, so, so, 
Oh, so yeah, go ahead, Fun. No, I was just gonna, yeah, yeah. Once again, thank you so much for coming on. Um, yeah, and and thank you for being understanding. We're like three minutes over time, so hopefully we didn't eat into. Oh yeah, training. of course, no problem, no problem. Thanks <laughs> um, for letting me take a, a call. <laughs> of course, yeah, no of course. Uh, and yeah, we'd love to have you on again because there's still like so many questions we didn't we didn't get to, um, and so many things we'd love to hear your thoughts on. Awesome. If you liked the episode, follow us on Spotify and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. Our website was built by Face Solutions, logo designed by Charmeni, and music by Wonderly Music. Thank you for listening. Thank you.